1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, we are honored to have Dr. James Unguriano with us. Dr. Unguriano is an honorary research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland and in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And today, he is here to talk with us about his new book, called Science, Religion, and the Protestant Tradition, Retracing the Origins of Conflict. Uh, James, welcome. Thank you very much, appreciate it. Uh, let us start uh, with, uh, by, by telling us a little about yourself. So you are a historian of religion and science. Tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in this topic, especially this really uh, fascinating topic of sci- uh, the conflict between science and religion.
0: Sure. Um, Actually, I never thought of being a historian. I was always kind of very artistic growing up. My brother and I used to draw comic books together. All four years of high school, I had art as an elective. I even sold a few things at some art shows. So in those young and naive years, I often thought about becoming an artist. Uh, My last year in high school, though, brought me into the world of computers. My school had just built this great computer lab. Uh, I started teaching myself AutoCAD software, which is used mostly in the field of architecture and design. I I went to bookstores and and would just kind of sit there for hours reading through these AutoCAD manuals. Um, So shortly after graduating, I started applying to small architectural firms uh, an area in Sacramento, California. Uh, I got a call back from one and went in for an interview, got a job, it's a great job. Uh, I drew up all the plans. Uh, they were called blueprints back in the day. Uh, had a f- ton of fun doing it, learned about a lot about the industry and did that for a few years, but something was, was missing. Uh, I was making good money, no longer living with my parents, uh, but I needed something more. So while I was working as an architectural drafter, I started taking philosophy courses at kind of a local community college in in the area. I began reading Plato and Aristotle. I found Paul Davies' God in the New Physics. Davies is a English theoretical physicist. Uh, He's now, I believe, teaching at uh, Arizona University. So soon after getting that book, I started a book club for all those kind of interested in discussing those ideas. And Davies kind of introduced me to the world of Western religious thought. He often wrote about a number of important theologians like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, Roger Bacon, Francis Bacon and the like. And this sort of became a a spiritual awakening, if you will. Um, At that point, I decided to quit architecture and pursue a degree in philosophy. I enrolled at the University of California, Davis. but I needed more. I needed more context. I needed more biography. Uh, so, in addition to concentrating on philosophy, I also added a second major in religious studies, which was just kind of amazing. The religious studies program at UC Davis was just superb. I had great professors, great instructors. I don't know what it's like now there, but when I was there, it was it was simply amazing read so much during that time. I read Church Fathers, I read Dead Sea Scrolls, I read the Apocrypha and Psyduepigrapha and some of the most pioneering scholarship on the study of religion. It was an incredible experience. And there was one professor in particular at UC Davis that encouraged me to look more closely at the debate between science and religion. Her name is Alison Kuder. Uh, she became my honors thesis supervisor. Her, mo- her work mostly focuses on the interaction between religion and science in the West, with a special emphasis on kind of the more esoteric elements like natural magic and Kabbalah and alchemy and so on. She was one of the last students of Francis Yates. And if you know anything about Yeats, her work was mostly on the Renaissance. She taught at Warburg Institute at London, and she's most well known for her book on Bruno and Hermetic tradition, which was published sometime in the 1960s. So it should be no surprise that early in my academic career, I was also interested in kind of these similar things, some of those more esoteric undercurrents of Western civilization. But for my undergraduate degree, I completed an honors thesis on the patristic period that's the early church period uh, and natural philosophy looking at how theologians like saint augustine and roger bacon responded to greco-roman philosophy and arabic theology after davis i decided to study church history or the history of christian thought Um, so i entered the mdiv program at trinity evangelical divinity school ted's in the midwest in illinois but immediately felt lost in in the sense that I didn't see it as like a good fit for me. I didn't see myself ever using Hebrew uh, in the future. Um, I loved the Greek courses they had me take there. That was great, but uh, what I wanted to do, I knew what I wanted to do and having all these required kind of personal assessment courses seemed designed more for a pastor rather than a, a scholar in training. But I had great advisors at TEDS, uh, church historian Scott Manich and John Woodbridge. They kind of encouraged me to switch from the MDiv into the MA in church history and that definitely worked out. I became something of a historian of Christian thought. Then I took a year break from school. My wife and I traveled to South Korea to teach English. I believe that was between 2012 and 2013. Coming back to the States, I wanted to get back into it. And the first person I thought about working with was Ron Numbers. Um, we moved back to the States. We moved back to Madison, Wisconsin, where my wife's family lived at the time. So naturally, Ron being at UW-Madison, I thought about working with him. Unfortunately, Ron had just retired and he was no longer accepting PhD students. But Ron's this kind of amazing guy. who is was very open, very welcoming uh, to me, we had lunch, we had dinner together on several occasions. He talked to me about all sorts of topics, getting me in touch with with others. So it was during one of those conversations he mentioned the work of Peter Harrison. I had worked I had read some of Peter's work while in grad school and I loved it. so after Ron told me about him, I, I picked up the the rest of his publications, all his articles and all his books, and Ron told me that Peter was now, while working in Australia at the University of Queensland, where he's originally from, and and that he was accepting PhD students. So I gave Peter a call. We chatted a bit on topics and then he encouraged me to apply. So I ended up uh, getting a full ride scholarship to do my PhD at University of Queensland. Um, Initially, I wanted to work on narratives of the scientific revolution among the French philosophers, but Peter suggested a much narrower topic like a good supervisor does you know kind of narrow your field a little bit he told me to work on this so-called conflict thesis and that's what i ended up doing for my dissertation and then a couple of years later ended up publishing uh it as the book uh science religion and the protestant tradition
1: yeah, that that was a fascinating journey from architecture to physics philosophy religion history of uh... Church history, and then you ended up in Australia working with Peter Harrison to write this book. Magnificent. And uh, you mentioned conflict uh, thesis, and I'm sure some of the listeners might not be familiar with this. So can you just, and I'm sure we're going to get into that in more details later on, but can you tell us briefly for the benefit of the audience what conflict thesis is?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so in a nutshell... The conflict thesis is the idea that science and religion are fundamentally in conflict. Always have been, always will be. This is a history of war. So in that sense, and this is important, in that sense, it is a historical argument. It's an argument allegedly drawn from history. So most proponents of the conflict thesis maintain, if you look back in history, particularly Christian history, but not exclusively Christian history. But if you look back at every moment, every step in the advance of science or some new learning, religion has attempted to oppose that progress. You have notions like Christianity was responsible for the demise of ancient Greek science, that the medieval period was an age of intellectual darkness, that Galileo was imprisoned and tortured for advancing Copernicanism, or that Christian theologians opposed Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and so on. So the list is really kind of endless.
1: Yeah, and what I like about your book is that in your introduction to your book, you have this section called Shifting Historiography. As you've mentioned, there have always been these myths that religions always, um, uh, let's say, stopped or hindered the progress of science. But the history of science is more or less a new discipline in early 20th century. And you mentioned some key influential figures who actually did this revision of history. They read history, they read the archival documents, and they came up with, uh, with, 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 with ideas of they found uh, a lot of evidence contrary to this thesis. So can you tell us a little about this shifting historiography of the conflict between science and religion?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, the the history of the history of science is just as complicated as a historical relationship between religion and science. But most historians, you're right, most historians of science have turned this narrative on its head. They have been rejecting kind of the simplistic view about conflict for about a century now. A key figure in this re-evaluation is philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. Back in 1925, He warned readers that although conflict between religion and science is what naturally occurs to our minds, the true facts of the case are much more complex. And Interestingly, Whitehead also observed that the very foundations of modern science were laid in the soil of medieval religious thought, a position that was further supported in the following decades in the scholarship. So rather than seeing religion as oppressive or obstructionist, scholars were beginning in the early 20th century, beginning to view it as important, if not essential, in the development of modern science. And by the mid 20th century, other scholars were beginning to argue that Christian theology in particular made science possible. You have scholars such as Robert K. Merton, Michael Foster, Charles Webster, and many more saw kind of a specific connection between the rise of modern science and Protestantism. But by the mid-1970s, another major historiographical shift occurred within the field. It became clear that notions of conflict were now mostly confined to the 19th century, to the controversies that broke out in the fields of geology, biology, paleontology, and specifically to the religious responses to the 1859 publication of Charles Darwin's or On the Origin of Species. But even here, even here, things are not so simple. His church historian, Owen Chadwick, for example, noted that, There's a distinction between science when it was against religion and scientists when they were against religion. So by the end of the decade, such distinctions were being made by most scholars. And especially important here is a work by James R. Moore, kind of a seminal post-Darwinian controversies published in 1979. Moore demonstrated that the complexity of religious responses to Darwin's work. There are actually many, many theologians in the late 19th century, who who embraced Darwin's theory of evolution. And Moore's book made a significant impact on later historians like Ron Numbers and and even Peter Harrison. So this notion of complex relationship between science and religion became sort of the clarion call for most historians of science in the later part of the 20th century, and it still is. Another key work here is by historian of science John Hedley Brooke. He can solidated almost a century of scholarship on science and religion, religion relations in his, his book Science and Religion, Some Historical Perspective, and that was published in 1991. So Brooke aimed to reveal something of the complexity of the relationship between science and religion. So this idea of complexity is now kind of the standard interpretation for most historians of science. <laughs>
1: That was a great explanation because we all tend to go to these reductive, simplistic ideas of this conflict and our classic examples are, like you mentioned, Galileo, or simply rejecting anything that was in the Middle Ages or saying that church was completely against science. Um and again, more, more 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 recently, I mean, in the nineteenth century that you mentioned, there were that was a great distinction. You actually meant, uh, mentioned science mm. against religion, or scientists against religion. Right. And in your book, you also mentioned that there was this conflict between maybe between new ways of thinking and, and older ways of thinking. And, and and I I come from literary background, mm. and I read an article some time ago that the position of the poet or the artist in the 19th century was being undermined as a as as let's say the public intellectual, and we had the rise of scientists, mm. Charles Darwin and his and his his followers, those uh, scientific elites, those cohorts. I think Huxley was one of them, mm. right? Who was a, a, a very fervent follower of Darwin. So it was more mainly a fight for 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 let's say. An exclusive epistemology, as you mentioned in the book, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, kind of a, a fight for authority and the kind of professionalization of science. Mm. And it was very much mm. a, a problem in, in the UK, uh, in in Britain. Um, because just the attachment that universities had to ecclesiastical institutions, but in the U.S., you didn't have that kind of attachment. So to become a professional science in the U.S. was a lot easier than to become a professional science in in the U.K. at at the end of the 19th century.
1: And uh, this might come as a surprise to the listeners that Religion and science have coexisted peacefully for most of the history, and in some cases, religious institutions, as you have also pointed out, supported the progress and growth of science. Even the most uh, uh, the most famous scientists, such as Charles uh, sorry such as uh, Newton, mm. they tended to think of science as a way of better understanding God or religion. Can you talk about this coexistence, peaceful coexistence of science and religion?
0: Yeah. Um, I, I want to be careful here because following Brooke, uh, I want to make sure that I emphasize that positions of either conflict or concord between science and religion are mostly undermined by the abundance of historical evidence that kind of precludes these kind of meta-narratives of either harmony or, or disharmonies. Again, the relationship is really complicated. It's kind of a, a case-by-case situation. But usually in kind of the Reevaluated history uh, of science and religion. Most historians begin with kind of the discussion between Christianity and science. They begin with people like the lawyer Tertullian, who famous, famously argued, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? And Tertullian was concerned about protecting Christian doctrine from pagan philosophy. Tertullian was an early church father. But Tertullian wasn't a radical anti-intellectual. His writings actually reveal that he was superbly educated in the Greco-Roman classical tradition and that his argument against pagan philosophy, ironically, was built out of the materials that, the the methods that he drew from, from the kind of the same philosophical tradition. So he's using Greco-Roman philosophy to undermine Greco-Roman philosophy. And if you look at the, the literature, patristic scholars have long pointed out that the early church father did not renounce all contact with Greco-Roman ideas, and that includes their natural philosophy or science as it was known back then. So different though the Christians were from the pagans and religious belief, it was kind of this large and important area of political and philosophical knowledge that Christians and pagans held in common. Most of the church fathers were adult converts who had received their education in pagan schools. In their efforts to kind of create and defend Christian doctrine, it was inevitable that they would employ the tools of the classical tradition. While Tertullian himself was had very little enthusiasm for Greco-Roman philosophy, including natural philosophy, you have church fathers such as Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria. They all kind of adopted an eclectic mixture of pagan philosophies, including Platonism, Neoplatonism, Stoicism. Again, Clement of Alexandria, for example, sought to kind of meet the demand of Christians, thinking Christians, for a more coherent defense of their faith. While at the same time, steering clear of what he considered heresy, he argued that philosophy to the Greek world, was the law? What was the law to the Hebrews? Sort of a tutor, escorting them to Christ. So philosophy is a kind of a preparatory process. It opens a road for the person whom Christ brings to the final goal, according to Clement. of you know, Greek philosophers is, is Greek philosophy is not only preliminary or preparatory. It also serves as a necessary aid to understanding Christianity itself, according to Clement. He says that while that in while matters of faith, it is possible to have faith without being literate, and it's not possible to understand the statements contained in faith without study. So in other words, one does not need philosophy to have faith, but philosophy is clearly needed to understand faith. So Clement was an intellectual, a cosmopolitan Christian. Uh, In Alexandria, he wanted to set theology in the framework of contemporary Greek philosophy. Uh, A more conservative approach, if you will, was taken by St. Augustine, perhaps the most influential figure uh, in early church fathers. Um, Throughout his numerous writings, St. Augustine proposed that the classical tradition could serve as a handmaid of Christian theologies. If those who are called philosophers, he wrote, have said things that are indeed true, and are well accommodated to our faith, they should not be feared. Rather, what they have said should be taken from them as from unjust possessors and converted. So you have this idea of baptizing Greco-Roman philosophy for Christian purposes. Um, for St. Saint, for Saint Augustine, all truth is ultimately God's truth, right? Even if found in books of pagan authors. So we should seize them and use them without hesitation. So even among patristic theologians, we find the kind of foundational elements of many modern scientific disciplines and practices. Christians like Tertullian, Clement, and St. Augustine inherited from the classical tradition of ancient Greeks a body of philosophical knowledge dealing with the physical world. And they embraced it And many of these subjects, including what we now call cosmology, astronomy, physics, optics, medicine, and so on. Um, much of this intellectual heritage was actually absorbed in the metaphysical framework underlying medieval Christian thought. While popular historical accounts tend to portray medieval Christians as Philistine, suspicious of learning, the truth is that the classical tradition of art, literature, and even the natural sciences were kept alive largely by Christian Christians in monastic communities. You know, Roman Empire was kind of descending into civil disorder. With the barbarian invasions, Christianity became sort of a sole source of centralized authority. So a new institution emerged during the time that not only sustained, but sanctioned the classical tradition. For in addition to vows of poverty and charity and obedience and agricultural work, monastic orders included the preservation of ancient literature. Monastic orders thus made education sort of a prerequisite to a religious life. And most of our modern libraries are greatly indebted to the preservation of the works of both the patristic writers and ancient natural philosophy by these monks. In time, the monasteries became the center of literary culture. Kings and, and emperors would send their kids to the monasteries so they can get educated the monastic schools, as they grew in, in richness, they in wealth, they became urban schools and subsequently grew into larger cathedral schools and then into public schools, which were not only linked to any, were not linked at all to any kind of ecclesiastical authority. The course of study expanded into two parts, what was known as the trivium, consisting of grammar, rhetoric, logic, and then the quadrivium, consisting of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. So as monasticism continued to mature in the following centuries, its store of scientific knowledge also increased. So you have these schools eventually, these monastic schools that eventually grew into these kind of great universities of Paris, Oxford, Cambridge in the 13th century. So as kind of a repository of learning and philosophical speculation, several features I think of these new universities are important for understanding the development of science. First, we, as we have already mentioned, the universities of late medieval period were instrumental in recovering uh, and translating kind of Arabic, Latin and Greek classics. The second feature of the new university is kind of a remarkable rationalistic turn in the sense that students were required to apply their minds and energies to a number of discursive subjects like law, philosophy, theology, and to the study of nature. This method of learning came to be known as scholasticism, uh, where students and their masters employed kind of a dialectical reasoning, which approaches any field of study in terms of a set of propositions. You have problems, you have arguments, you have counter arguments. And scholasticism, uh, scholars have argued, can be seen as an attempt to reconcile the philosophy of Greek and Arabic thinkers with medieval Christian theology. It's not a philosophy or a theology itself, but it's sort of an instrument of method for for learning, which emphasized rationality. But perhaps the most important feature of the new university was its kind of corporate structure. You have the separation of church and state Uh, It wasn't merely an American phenomenon, its roots appear in the structure of medieval universities of Western Europe. This in turn gave the masters of the universities great liberty and autonomy in structuring the curriculum and lessons for their students. Um, so the medieval university scholar is best characterized as an organizer, a codifier, a builder of systems, uh, highly sophisticated and complex philosophical speculations framed within kind of a rigid dialectical pattern was what the university was like in a medieval period. And the philosophers and theologians at those mainly autonomous universities freely debated a wide range of scientific and theological questions. And really kind of set the foundation, like Alfred North Whitehead argued uh, back in the 1920s, kind of the foundations for modern science.
1: And let's go back to the topic of your book, um, Retracing the Origins of Conflict. Uh, As you mentioned, most of this conflict, the way it's been highlighted, is in the 19th century. And there were two uh historians if it's the right time because some people don't even consider them historians but uh you are the expert in that area you'll tell us about that the so-called architects of conflict theory that religion and science have been in an eternal conflict who are these so-called architects in the 19th century where were they from what are they, what were their books and why they became very influential
0: yeah. Um, it's, again, since the beginning of this kind of more complex understanding of science-religion relations, most historians have traced the origins of the so-called conflict thesis to the 19th century, specifically to uh, Anglo-American writers. And these Anglo-American writers happen to be a guy named John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. They are big figures in historical studies of science and religion. So let me, let me begin with Draper as he published his work before before what? Draper was actually born in England. His father was an itinerant Wesleyan minister. Interesting story behind his father's vocation. Draper's dad was actually raised a Catholic, and there was a, a local revival meeting where he lived, and he and some of his friends went out to this revival meeting with the intent of mocking the revivalist. But by the end... Of the meeting draper's dad had converted to methodism so he had converted from catholicism to this kind of protestant denominational movement uh started by wesley john wesley uh john charles wesley so at the age of 11 draper's um dad sent the young draper to a methodist boarding school presumably to follow in his father's footsteps and prepare him for the ministry uh, but his father seems to have kind of a very strong non-conformist outlook He had a penchant for scientific subjects like chemistry and astronomy. So it's not a surprise that Draper's dad ended up sending him to study chemistry and medicine at the University of College London, known back then as London University, um, which, unlike Oxford or Cambridge at the time, did not require any kind of religious test. Uh, His father, unfortunately, died almost as soon as Draper started his studies Draper, though being kind of a very determined uh, young man, completed his degree in chemistry and after that emigrated to the United States. He had some family, some distant relatives living in the United States for some time then. Draper established himself very quickly as a leading scientist in America. He taught at a couple different schools before becoming head of chemistry at New York University in, 19, in 1837. He was known as a pioneer of photochemistry and is thought to be the first person to take a photograph of the human face. He was also one of the earliest to practice what's called astrophotography. He was one of the earliest people to take a photo of the moon, for example. But Draper soon gave up chemistry and science in general for history. Of course, now he's most well known for his history of the conflict between religion and science, which. a book that he published in 1874 in that book draper claimed that the history of science was quote a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers the expansive force of the human intellect on one side and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interests on the other end quote now andrew dixon white was never a scientist he was a man of letters he was a man of literature White was born in New York, right around the time Draper and his family were making their way to America from England. White's parents also believed he was destined for the pulpit. His father sent him to an Episcopalian college, but White found a curriculum at that school uninspiring, to say the least. He actually ran away and demanded to be sent to Yale College. He had something about falling out with his father on this, but his father ultimately relented and sent him to Yale to study history and English literature. After college, White went on this kind of grand three-year European tour, visiting places like Oxford and Cambridge, and spent some time studying in France and Berlin, and then several months backpacking in Switzerland, Austria, and Italy, before coming back to the States to do postgraduate work at Yale. In 1857, at the remarkable age of 25, he was appointed history professor at the University of Michigan. But at the outbreak of the Civil War, he resigned his post and was unexpectedly nominated and elected for New York State Senate. And it was during this time that he met Ezra Cornell, a Quaker who had made a fortune in the telegraph business. And together, they founded Cornell University in New York. White became its first president, but he was sort of an absentee president. He he had a number of diplomatic appointments and eventually resigned the presidency in 1885 to work exclusively on research and writing. Before all that though, White was known for his notorious Battlefields of Science lecture in 1869, in which he traced the great sacred struggle for the liberty of science. So he's reviewing in this this lecture one by one the so-called battles fought in astronomy, chemistry, anatomy, geology, and so on. He took this lecture and he expanded it into a small book in 1876 entitled simply The Warfare of Science. And then after resigning from Cornell, he spent the next couple of decades expanding this lecture even further which eventually turned into this kind of massive two-volume masterpiece, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom, which he published in 1896. So according to historians of science, Draper and White set the terms of the debate. Although few cite them today, most who claim there's some sort of conflict between science and religion usually follow one or more of the narratives set out in their books.
1: Uh, And that's the reason they call them the the architects of conflict thesis. And your work (laughs) is, in a way, a revisionist history because you reveal that. And we'll get into that soon. But but before that, let me ask you this question. Can you briefly tell us? And they were also, as you mentioned, uh, propelled by by some anti-Catholic sentiments, because they were Protestants. And uh, can you tell us some of the myths that they perpetuated about this so-called eternal conflict between science and religion, and if they ever talked about other religions as well, such as Islam or Judaism, or was it only Christianity?
0: Yeah, most of the myths between science and religion that you can think of right now, like the that medieval people thought the world was flat that the early church um opposed dissection all those myths are contained in their narratives now which which was really interesting in in draper is that draper had a very uh, i guess you could say positive view on islam he, he argued that Islam sort of kind of rekindled the kind of expiring embers of knowledge and religious purity. He called Islam this the Southern Reformation. Uh, it was an attempt to purify and reform the abuses and wickedness of the Catholic Church. Although not uncritical, Draper nevertheless believed Islam produced, quote, a more correct views, particularly in rejecting the notion of incessant divine intervention. In the same way, they vindicated the majesty of God. Islam vindicated the majesty of God because the followers of of Muhammad embraced learning and scientific truth. Again, we shouldn't confuse Draper's remarks on Islam as an endorsement. He actually had some pretty negative things to say about the Quran and, and Muhammad himself. He was just simply following sort of a commonplace historiography that emphasized Arab nations as collectors and codifiers of Uh, as well as commentators upon ancient Greek philosophy. And what's really interesting is that many 18th and 19th century scholars who commented on Islam did so mainly as a foil to attack Christianity or institutional Christianity, um, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church. This was especially true among Protestant historians. Protestants did not consider themselves friends of Islam, they saw elements in that religion that they could use in their conflict with Roman Catholics. So in, in such historical surveys, Islam had broadly represented as a pure monotheistic religion that had resisted external influences in stark comparison to the darkness that had covered Europe and which was always Roman Catholics were responsible for that.
1: And uh, with Draper, there's this quote in your book on page 62 Hmm. that I'd like to read. And maybe you can comment on that because uh, Draper makes this distinction between ecclesiastical power and authority and true religion. So I'm curious to know. What is his definition of true religion and what is the complexity of his ideas? And there's this quote on page 62 of your book that Draper had argued in his remarks on ecc- ecclesiastical history that true Christianity, plain and simple in its original principles, had been paganized by the early councils. That, I think it's a Draco from Draper, a clear and unpolluted fountain mm. fed by secret channels with the dew of heaven when it grows a large river and takes a long and winding course, receives a tincture from the various soils through which it passes. So can you tell us what is that distinction between ecclesiastical power and authority and true religion and why he wasn't against religion anyway.
0: Yeah, you know, this is, I hope, what really kind of distinguishes my work I'm not merely debunking the narratives of Draper and White. I think that's been done over and over again by a lot of other really good historians. I, I'm actually, I wanted to understand why they argued the way they did. What were their motivations? What did they actually believe? And to answer those questions or answer those questions, things for me got really complicated fast. And my conclusion uh, is that they are not guilty of the charge most historians of science and religion attribute to them. I think in some sense we have failed to understand Draper and White because somewhat ironically, we have ignored what they actually said they were doing. Now that doesn't mean what they argued in their books is correct. But the point here is to better understand what was happening historically at that point in time. We need to read their books, I argue, as primary sources. It's kind of revealing a climate of thought, a climate of opinion, I think, for whatever reason, many historians have, have misunderstood. And this is has everything to do with that kind of keen perceptive question you have about Draper's true religion. What is Draper's true religion? Again, things get kind of complicated and really messy here. So bear with me as I try to kind of summarize and uh, flesh out the religious views of not only Draper, but White. So
1: Draper... Yeah, I'm act- sorry, did I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. Quick. Uh, I, I should have asked you earlier, because you did archival research, so maybe you could talk about that as well, because you actually read their manuscripts, their handwritings. Maybe yeah. you could talk about that as well when you're talking about this. Okay.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so my, my views of Draper and White changed dramatically after I started doing archival research. I, I was sort of kind of given the idea the work on the conflict thesis by my supervisor, Peter Harrison, and I, I came to their views pretty much like most people. Do They can? They are the architects of the conflict thesis. They argue that science and religion are fundamentally opposed to each other. So I had those assumptions, and those assumptions were basically based on the secondary literature, the work of historians of science who have been blaming Draper and White for this narrative since the 1970s. Um, but then I got into the archives. I, I, I went to the Library of Congress, which has most of Draper's um, uh, letters and private correspondence and unpublished manuscripts. Reading through his letters changed my view of Draper. Same thing with White. Most of White's uh, correspondence and unpublished uh, manuscripts are contained at Cornell University. So I went both to the Library of Congress and Cornell University to do some archival work, and that really changed my view. It also helped to read everything they've, they've, they've published, right? Not just those works that are typically blamed for the conflict, conflict thesis. I've read a lot of White's political uh, treatises that were unrelated to this kind of narrative of science and religion. So that led me to believe that Draper actually advocated a return to uh, a pure, what he called a pure, more rational Christianity. In his early lectures on chemistry, the students, for example, he sounds rather like a natural theologian. Draper spoke of the laws of nature as designed and set in place by an almighty God, the creator, the great architect. This kind of more rational, reasonable Christianity comes from folks like Francis Bacon and the early members of the Royal Society of London. Later, you see the English deists advocated for the kind of the same natural theological position in addition to folks like John Locke. So all of them look back to the Protestant Reformation as the Reformation, not only of religion, but science or natural philosophy. So Draper also seemed to depend on historians like Edward Gibbon and his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. But he also mentions a work of German Lutheran church historian, Johann von Mosheim, English clergymen, Conyers Middleton, William Walburton, and John Jordan. These were all Protestant clergymen and historians. So looking at the entire corpus of Draper's writing is important here. Um, For example, it is often mentioned but left unanalyzed that Draper's history of the conflict was largely a condensed version of previously published work. And most importantly is his book, History of the Intellectual Development of Europe, which was published in 1863, about a decade earlier before his history of the conflict. And here he makes a crucial distinction that most historians of science have forgotten or ignored. So he's discussing the so-called paganization of Christianity under Emperor Constantine. Now, this paganization led Draper to make this kind of distinction between Christianity and ecclesiastical organizations. The former the ecclesiastical organizations, he wrote, is a gift of God. So Christianity uh, is a gift of God, whereas the ecclesiastical organizations are the product of human invention and therefore open to criticism or condemnation. So we argue that this paganization of Christianity had resulted, quote, in the tyranny of theology over thought and declare that those who had known what religion was in the apostolic days would be surprised by what was now engrafted upon religion. Even his notorious history of the conflict, under closer inspection, continues to make these distinctions. He's arguing that he will only consider the orthodox or the extremist views and not the moderate ones, not moderate Christianity. He expressed concern that this kind of extreme traditionary Christianity, faith, was leading the intelligent classes to give up on religious faith entirely, and this was a problem for Draper. You know, His narrative, in short, was intended to show that the decline of religious faith was a direct consequence of a politicized Christianity, not science. So two crucial points here about Draper. Draper's understanding of history is mostly drawn from, mostly taken from Protestant historians. That's really important. Second, these Protestant historians predate the 19th century. Ultimately, it seems that Draper's hero was Unitarian minister and chemist Joseph Priestley. In one of his many lectures, Draper tells students that we must not impute it to mental weakness that Priestley passed through many religious beliefs before he became a Unitarian. He says that this was the pursuit of truth. So Draper greatly admired Priestley's scientific work, but also his religious views. So Draper clearly was no atheist, but he looked back to the rational religion found among 17th and 18th century intellectuals who viewed this kind of new knowledge, new evidence of the creative power of God in nature. So in this sense, Draper can be firmly placed within this kind of Protestant tradition. White was in the same Protestant stream as Draper, but in a different segment, a different course, if you will. White did not look back to the past, but rather to contemporary conceptualizations or reconceptualizations of what religion was. Religion is found, White believed, in moral conscience, intuition, sentiment. This definition of religion, of course, was not new. It it kind of exemplified essential elements of the Romantic movement, which had become, by the late 19th century, kind of a central component of liberal Protestant thought History showed, according to the White, that the interference with science and the supposed interest of religion has resulted in evils, both to science and religion. So White is separating religion from theology. And by separating religion from theology, White could denounce that the most mistaken of all mistaken ideas was the conviction that science and religion are enemies. While science has kind of conquered dogmatic theology, it will go hand in hand with religion, according to White. Again, the whole point of his narrative, he later reflected in his autobiography published in 1918, was to strengthen religious teachers by enabling them to see some of the evils of the past, which for the sake of religion itself, they ought to guard against the future. White was deeply, deeply influenced by his time in Germany. In Germany, he studied under the kind of great liberal Protestant thinkers, Karl Ritter and Leopold von Ronck. He was also reading folks like Gotthold uh, Lessing and Johann Goethe and uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, and other mediating theologians, scholars called them mediating theologians because there was an attempt to reconcile Christianity with modernity. Lessing, for example, talked about the evolution of religion he maintained that all faiths would one day lead to one truth no creed or dogma was complete or final christianity according to lessing was this kind of ever-evolving thing so white had taken that view that view from lessing white also imbued this this kind of views of scholemacher scholemacher was convinced that true religion was not found in doctrine or books or dogma but in intuition and feelings kind of inward witness of the heart so draper and white were flowing down the same liberal protestant stream just in different areas if i could kind of summarize draper followed a religion of the head whereas white obeyed a religion of the heart
1: that was a perfect rant up to the to do the ideas and that's why you're working as is a revisionist sister because most of the things you just mentioned are not published anywhere and people mainly refer to those two books mm-hmm. uh, which I've heard that became really influential and they were even translated into Arabic so they had they were heard in the Arab yeah. world as well yeah. um, and most of it comes from the archival research you've done in your book you have actually take a picture of their notes and their writings that have been included in the book do you, just out of curiosity do you know that if they're do you know about the reception of their work? I know that it's a question that you may not have researched, but do you know about the reception of their work in outside the Anglo-Saxon world? Yeah, there
0: are <clears throat> a few scholars um, that I can give you the names for uh, later who are currently working on the reception of Draper's work in, in Islam and uh, other, other kind of the Middle East and... Um, uh, they're doing great work. I know Shoab, I've, I've had a talk with Shoab before on one of his podcasts, and Shoab's doing some great work about uh, the relationship between evolution and, and Islam, and he's looked at the reception history of Draper's book. So um, I, I can give you some more information about Shoab's work, and there are a few others that are doing really great work on, on how Muslims interpreted or used Draper's, Draper's book as an, as an attack Towards Christianity in general.
1: Uh, so basically, with the with, with Draper and White, there was not really a conflict between science and religion. It was mainly contesting theological traditions within Christianity rather than between science and religion. And uh, did when they were writing their books or notes about science about about religion, did who who were some of the influential people? They did they reference anybody in their works or maybe it was their observations mm-hmm. yeah so did they have any who are the key figures who influence their thoughts
0: yeah so, so here's a rub here's a the rub their proposals were not particularly new Draper and White what they were proposing was not new what they what they did was consolidate a number of narratives that were already in circulation and that were commonplace particularly among protestants protestant theologians protestant historians and men and women of science so this whole conflict or warfare in their view was not between science quote science and religion but between contending protestant traditions in the one corner you have the new theology of liberal protestantism which de-emphasized scripture dogmatism institutionalism and the like. On the other corner, you have traditionary faith, creeds and doctrines, orthodoxy, and more general, kind of a more conservative Protestantism. And if we return to the 16th century, we witness this kind of inauguration of a new vision of history. In their critique of Rome, Protestant reformers initially proved their point through sola scriptura, right, scripture alone. But in their attempt to defend such Protestant principles, they were compelled to explain them by reference to the doctrines and practices of the early church. And in so doing, needed to trace when and how the church lost its way. So this becomes, again, a historical argument, an argument drawn from history, which is kind of ironic, right? And the struggle between the forces of Reformation and counter-Reformation intensifies, Protestants gradually came to appreciate more and more the study of history and its possible uses in refuting the historical foundations of Rome and the papacy. You see this in people like Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and many, many others. History becomes a weapon, particularly among English reformers like John Fox and Richard Hooker. They all followed this kind of new historiographical scheme, constructing this polemical narrative that supported the deep historical roots of their own Protestant faith. It wasn't long before Protestants also began using reason and science as a weapon against the Roman Catholic Church. It must be emphasized here that These arguments directed at Catholics also appeared almost immediately in disputes between contending Protestant groups. Hooker, for example, in defending the Elizabethan religious settlement against religious enthusiasm of Puritans, began emphasizing a more reasonable, quote-unquote, reasonable approach to Scripture. Again, you see this in Francis Bacon, later members of the Royal Society, they did the same thing when it came to the new science. A more rational, more reasonable Christianity begins to emerge against the religious enthusiasts like the Puritans and other such groups. And you see this in the writings of Cambridge Platonists and the Latitudinarian Divine. They advocated this kind of a spirit of reason. Human reason, they said, is the candle of the Lord as to what it means to be made in the image of God. To go against reason, according to the Cambridge Platonists, was to go against God. So whatever the differences between these kind of various uh, Protestant groups in, in the early modern century, Cambridge Platonists, Latitudinarian Divines, they were kind of united in pursuing the reformation of religion along more rationalistic lines. So what began as an anti-Catholic polemic, By the magisterial reformers using history, reason, science as a weapon against so-called Catholic superstition and corruption became a conflict between contending Protestant groups. And these are the sources that both Draper and White are drawing from.
1: It's a fascinating history, all this complexity of these stories, and it also reminds me of those uh, simplistic narratives that we have about conflict, examples that we have about the conflict between science and religion, such as Galileo, uh, which is again, or Darwin again, which are all really, really complex, but they only stick to one little aspect of the, the, the story. Now, my um, curiosity is that, and this is something you've discovered in your recovery research and in the book, is that why this, this subtlety and complexity of the argument has escaped historians for so long. And um, you trace it actually to, to a key figure, Edward Livingston, humans. So can you talk about that aspect um, of your research?
0: Sure. Let, 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 let me say something a little bit, a little bit about humans, because central here, besides Draper and White, was this guy named Edward Livingston, humans. He was the science editor of D. Appleton and Company, this kind of publishing empire in the late 19th century. He published, promoted, defended for an American audience the work of Charles Darwin, Thomas Huxley, John Tyndall, Herbert Spencer, a lot of the scientific naturalists, other many English and European scientists. More importantly, humans was the key figure in disseminating and popularizing the narratives of Draper and White. You know, humans began his publishing career just as British and American publishing was undergoing a remarkable uh publishing revolution. Uh Humans was at the forefront of this revolution, establishing kind of new copyright agreement laws and popularizing scientific knowledge in his extremely successful magazine, The Popular Science Monthly. He also had a book series, the international scientific series. Both these Publishing ventures were ambitious projects that were started in the 1870s, right before he started publishing Draper's Draper's work. So he was intent on diffusing the latest advances in science to a more global audience. Humans was also a member of the Free Religious Association. In 1825, the American Unitarian Association was established to promote kind of a a humanistic understanding of Christianity, a humanistic Christology, kind of a more rationalistic interpretation of scripture, a more optimistic view of human nature. But after the Civil War, controversy and schism emerged within that denomination some members decided that Unitarianism still harbored kind of a residual orthodoxy. So they separated and they founded in 1867 in Boston, the Free Religious Association, the FRA. And the Free Religious Association sought to promote the principles of free thought and moral philosophy without any reference to institutional Christianity. And so they composed of kind of a diverse Assortment of radical Unitarians, Universalists, Spiritualists, Transcendentalists, Scientific Theists, and other kind of disaffected religious minorities. They advanced what they called the new, the religion of humanity, the religion of humanity. Humans actually served as one of its vice presidents. You now, in 1873, again, right before he publishes Draper's book, in 1873, at its annual meeting, Humans delivered an address entitled The Religious Work of Science. And in this speech, Humans announced that science has long been regarded and still widely believed to be the antagonist of religion, but a time is coming, he proclaimed, when it will be accepted as its most powerful ally and best friend. So, according to Humans, science and religion are not mutually exclusive. It is the office of science to explore the works of God, of religion, to deal with the sentiments and emotions which go out toward the divine author. Men of science, he argued, devote their lives to exploring the works of God. They thus labor at discovering the truths in nature. And such work, therefore, is religious work, according to humans. And as religious work, science has attained, quote, the grandest achievement in revealing the evolution and growth of religion. So whenever conflict emerged, it occurred not between science and religion, but between theology and science, according to the humans. He believed that theology has always been the adversary not only of science, but religion as well. So again, These ideas that you see in Draper and White are really kind of there in humans as well. So he argued that orthodoxy, dogmatism, must come to an end. And he was kind of a defender, tireless defender of the new liberal theology emerging in America in the late 19th century.
1: So yeah, so you rejected Christianity in favor of scientific naturalism, in that sense. And uh, you also... And he he played a key role, as you mentioned, in popularizing their ideas. And there were other figures as well who later on maybe distorted uh, Draper and Andrew Dixon White's ideas, Though those the people you call those secular humanists. And you mentioned a key figure, Joseph uh, McCain, in your book. Uh, can you talk about that one as well, please? Sure, sure. Um, it's not hard to disfigure <laughs> the
0: narratives of, of Draper and White. They kind of, they're kind of guilty at failing to communicate their ideas more clearly. Maybe it's just the very nature of this idea itself. Uh, they're easily appropriated by secularists, free thinkers, atheists at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Perhaps the most important secularist. To have appropriate Draper's historical narrative was this guy named Joseph McCabe. He was a Roman Catholic monk who abandoned his religious beliefs around 1895. McCabe was this incredible, uh, productive author. He wrote over 200 books on science, history, and religion. He was an advocate for atheism. Uh, He frequently forecast the doom of Christianity Uh, In light of modern science. And in 1927, he published a little book entitled The Conflict Between Science and Religion. McCabe essentially repeated Draper's narrative. But unlike Draper, McCabe gleefully cheered on the decay, the destruction of religion. Historians of the 21st century, he argued, will look back with amusement at those men of science and theologians who attempted to uh, show there's no conflict between religion and science. So people like Draper, Draper and White. You know, the Christian religion, McCabe contended, was the deadly opponent of scientific progress. And the vast majority, and this is really, really interesting, the vast majority of McCabe's book was sort of a diatribe against not religion, not kind of orthodox Christian religion, but what he called progressive religion. He repeated the same arguments of conservative and orthodox opponents of Draper, but claimed that liberal Protestantism was living in the land of bunk. That's his, that's his phrase, quote, land of bunk. So according to McCabe, those liberal theologians who reinterpreted traditional religious belief, wittingly or unwittingly, attacked the very foundations of Christianity. So at the beginning of the 20th century, rationalists, free thinkers, secularists, atheists, all seized upon historical narratives of Draper and White and other liberal Protestant historians, adopting them as weapons to, dis- to extinguish all religion. And here, here's the real irony. This kind of secular progressivism or humanism of skeptics like McCabe deeply informed the fledging discipline of the history of science itself as it developed in the early 20th century. I point out in in my book that George Sarton, the so-called father of the history of science, had also appropriated the general outlines of Draper and White without any of their religious nuance. As he himself put it, quote, the history of science is the story of an endless struggle against superstition and error. So Sarton believes that men of science are heroes fighting for truth against the forces of darkness, the enemies of religion and superstition in every shape and form. And Sarton actually wrote to Andrew Dixon White a couple of times asking him for support because at the time, and his, when he first immigrated to America, he was finding a, having a difficult time finding a job. He ended up working at Harvard, but he, his relationship with White was very close. But he took White's narrative and used it against the kind of Protestant, liberal Protestant beliefs that he had. So it's, it's a history of unintended consequences, really.
1: Yeah, but before I ask my last question, there, there's something about the book. It's the cover of the book, and it's a pity that our listeners can't see it, but I, but I strongly encourage them to just check the book. The cover of the book, Science and Religion and the Protestant Tradition, it looks like a lecture hall and you have people, it's a, it's a science lecture maybe, but in that corner, there's a corner in that lecture hall where you have religious books. Can you talk about this picture a bit.
0: Yeah, this this image comes from Puck magazine. Puck magazine was basically the 19th century equivalent to the onion, you know, the onion satire magazine publication Puck magazine was a satire yeah, magazine yeah. in, in yeah. Early 19th century America and our late 19th century America. And this was illustrated by a guy named Joseph Kepler. Kepler was an ex Catholic. But he believed that the science, the religion of the future would be something like this, a science lecture hall. They would go hand in hand. So again, I chose this image because I, I thought it reflected very much the beliefs of humans and Draper and White, that science and religion would go hand in hand. But again, how they understood religion was very different from how traditional kind of Orthodox Christians understood Understood religion and that, that that's key.
1: Yeah, and um, I know that I'm terribly uh, of, of, of dumbing down, summarizing the whole argument. So the argument that these Draper and Dixon were the architects of conflict thesis is is simply wrong or it has been misunderstood because it's more complex and there were people later on in 20th century who popularized and published their ideas but again they were very selective about what they wanted to publish and if i'm not mistaken a lot of the new atheists that we talk uh that, that they talk about this conflict between science and religion just simply are repeating those uh, let's say butchered ideas
0: yeah, I wouldn't say they're drawing from Draper and White as much as they're drawing from early 20th century American writers on like the history of science and religion. And you see this in George Sarton, but you also see this in kind of educational reformer John Dewey. John Dewey wrote a lot about educational reform and the history of civilization. And John Dewey basically had the kind of same conception of the relationship between religion and science that Joseph McCabe, the atheist, had, that religion had always kind of been obstructing, had always kind of uh, oppressed scientific innovation and, and a new learning. So, but again, those, even those early 20th century authors are drawing from the narratives of Draper and White without that nuance, without that kind of, they're more removed from the religious tradition, traditions that Draper and White were raised in.
1: And James, you are a historian, and I love asking speculative questions. You're a historian for religion. Do you, and you know, especially in the past two years with the pandemic, and again, I guess these debates between science and religion uh, were were, were kind of rekindled again. There were people who said that, well, there's this unprecedented death maybe since the Second World War. Uh, With the pandemic, so some people turned to religion for comfort and some people said, no, it's religion or God can't save you. Can't you see this meaningless death of hundreds of thousands of people? It's only only science that can help you. And I guess it gave more ammunition to uh, both opponents and proponents of science, either science or religion. Do you, do you think that um, religion will ever go away or do you think that science, because these people or historians have been saying that religion will definitely go away with the progress of science during the 21st century. It still hasn't really gone away. It has been reshaped. But do you really think that, uh, what's your take on it? Do you think religion will ever go away? Yeah, you know, I think the
0: most recent surveys indicate that um, people are becoming less and less uh, traditionally orthodox in, in their beliefs. What, what's really interesting is that recent books have been talking about the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, as the fastest growing religion in the world right now. And uh, I, I think that's that's right. Um, there's this great book by Tara Isabella Burton, Strange Writes, New Religions for a Godless World, where she looks at Uh, The rise in secularism, she redefined secularism. When when you look at the rise of secularism, you're not looking, you're not seeing less and less religion, but like you, like you put it, uh, modified, transformed religion. And she calls the nuns, this new religious group, the remixed, because even though they are detached from any kind of institutional religion They are mixing different elements from different religious traditions and kind of more new age, even consumerist mentality, uh, religion, kind of a self-help type of situation. But I think ultimately um, you're going to have religion As, as long as death is a problem. As long as there is death, there will be religion. People are trying to find meaning in their lives and they're trying to make sense of what. Um, some scientists and some philosophers like Albert Camus have argued that we live in a very meaningless universe. And that's kind of his absurd philosophy, the philosophy of the absurd. So we're trying to create some kind of meaning out of it. So um, because death is inevitable and people trying to make sense out of it and trying to get meaning out of it. So as long as death is a problem, there will always be religion.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, James. Uh, Absolutely enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you.